Today's special shear is a hadron, or a sort of review over the entire history we've covered in the past. A brief review in a different type of light. I will take this review from the viewpoint and depth of the Zayda Kodesh. As we know, we've mentioned many times before, we've spoken about it a number of times, it's mentioned throughout the Torah, that the Jewish nation is compared to the moon. Just as the Jewish calendar is conducted according to the moon, our holidays are guided by the moon, our year is a lunar year, the months are lunar months, as compared to the Goyim, the non-Jews, who have the solar year. They go according to the sun. Now, the major reason why we follow the moon, the lunar year, is because of the fact that the Jewish nation itself is compared to the moon. The nature of the moon is that there is a new moon born every 29 days, 12 hours, and exactly 793 1,080 of an hour. So in other words, every 29 and a half days there's a new moon born, approximately. What happens during that, those 29 and a half days? After the moon is born, you have a very thin crescent, a half moon, on the first day of the month, at the birth of the moon, and then it gradually grows larger. By the seventh day, you have exactly a half moon. The night of the fifteenth day, fifteenth day is just the half of the month, the middle of the month, you then have a complete full moon. The moon has reached its peak on the fifteenth day of the month. Immediately afterwards, the moon begins to decrease in size. On the sixteenth day, we find something missing in the moon. Part of the moon is missing. It decreases gradually until the last day, at the point of twenty-nine and a half days, the moon disappears entirely. Or it seems to have disappeared. It seems there is no moon left, and suddenly the moon is completely reborn. This is exactly the fate of the Jews in history. The Jews have that gradual rise, the birth of a nation, they rise until they become full, complete, in their full glory, and then suddenly they are struck down, they are decreased, they are smitten, they are expelled from one country to the next, they're persecuted, they are tortured, and an attempt is made to completely annihilate them. It seems that they are wiped out, it seems they are eradicated. Yet suddenly out of these ashes arises a new Jewish nation, or the Jewish nation rises anew. Exactly as the moon. Now the Zayda Kodesh says that according to this rule, we can follow the entire set of kings or rulers in the Jewish kingdom, the nation of Israel. The first one who was considered a leader or a ruler was Avraham. In fact, his name means that. His name represents Avraham, the father of many nations. He was the first one. And if we go straight to the top, the time when the Jews were at the greatest, the highest point, that was in the time of Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, and we find the Pesach says, Vatedev Chachmas Shlemai, the wisdom of Shlemai superseded, was superior to any other person on earth, and Vayeshev Shlemai al Hashem, the Melech. Shlemai, King Solomon, sat on the throne of Hashem. What does that mean on the throne of Hashem? The Gemara says that he ruled over the entire world, and not just the world itself. 
not just the universe, not just the earth, also over the upper world, meaning over the world of spirits. Aside from the world of beasts, birds, winds, and so forth, also over the ruchais, shedem, the spirits and demons. Even over those two he ruled. Which means that this was the peak of the Jewish nation. At what point was that? Exactly the 15th generation from Avraham Avinu. Representing the 15 days of the moon's rise to the time that it is full. The Zohar Kodesh says, let's follow this step by step. A very interesting review over Jewish history. First one was Avraham. He was the first leader, father and leader of the Jews. The second, Yitzchak Avinu. Third, Yaakov Avinu. These three would represent also, do throughout, represent the first three spheres, Chesed, Gevurah, Teferis. They would represent also first three letters of Hashem's name. The fourth letter of Hashem's name, Yudkei the letter K, stands for Malchus, the kingdom of Hashem. Then we come to kings. And the four, these are called the four pillars of the heavenly throne. Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, the fourth one is David HaMelech, King David. He is the support, the pillar of the heavenly throne. And here we find the beginning of the rule of King David, because after Yaakov Avinu, the fourth one, representing the fourth letter of Hashem's name, which stands for kingdom, representing also the completion of Hashem's name, which of the twelve tribes, the twelve sons of Yaakov, was selected as the tribe from which would come forth all the future Jewish kings, the fourth son, Yehuda. Fourth son, representing the fourth letter of Hashem, representing to the entire name of Hashem. The word Yehuda contains the four letters of Hashem's name, plus the Dalad, which stands for David HaMelech. This is the kingdom, Malchus David HaMelech, which comes from the tribe of Yehuda, therefore the fourth son. And so Yehuda was the fourth generation of these 15 that we're listing. Note then, what Ezel says, is that the fifth generation was Peretz. Peretz was born to Yehuda and his daughter-in-law. Here's a case where he married his daughter-in-law seemingly by error. It was a mistake. It would seem to be wrong. And yet, the Torah says that this was so fated, guided by the hand of Hashem, that this should happen. Because there had to come forth David HaMelech, the Moshiach, from this union. Following this, the next son, that means the sixth generation, was Chetzron. The seventh generation, his son was Ram. Seventh generation. It completes the seven spheres. Ram means on high. The opposite, letters backwards of Mar, bitter. Mar, bitter, is Bigimetria Amalek. This tribe comes forth, the one who will battle and destroy and defeat Amalek, Shriach ben David. The son of Rum was Aminadav, the eighth one, Aminadav, the eighth one because he had a very illustrious, distinguished son-in-law. His daughter Elisheva married Aharon Kohen, the brother of Moshe Rabbeinu, Aaron Kohen Gadol. His son in turn, it's the ninth generation, was Nachshon, Nachshon, the hero of the miracle of the dividing of the waters of the Red Sea. When the Jews approached the Red Sea, they all cried to Hashem for assistance, to be rescued. The enemy was behind them, pursuing them, ready to destroy them. 
There was no escape in front of them were the raging waters, the raging torrents of the Red Sea. So Hashem said, don't call to me now. Don't cry to me now. Move. Clear order to move. How do you move? When leaping into these waters would be certain death. Nachshon, the hero at that time, the son of Aminodav, leaped into the waters to show his courage as a leader, as a leader of the tribe of Yehuda, and his courage paid off because with his leap came the miracle where the waters divided and all the Jews went through in safety. Tenth generation was Salmon. The eleventh was Boaz. Here we find a case of Boaz at Tzaddik. Boaz was called so because Boaz, in him there was strength. Greatest strength possible is the willpower that a person possesses, the ability to overcome temptation, to overcome a test. He was tested in the same vein as Yosef HaTzadik, and he was successful. He passed this test with Rus. Rus, who was the convert that came from Moab, and Boaz married Rus. Now, this union again, this marriage was very necessary because only from this marriage could come forth the birth of David HaMelech HaMoshiach. And this, of course, is done so specifically, deliberately, to teach us that we should be very careful in how we treat converts. Because we find that the greatest of the Jews came from, were born from converts. And this was done so deliberately to show that the king of the Jews, the king for all time, would be a descendant of a convert. Rousseau was a convert and who proved herself to be as good and better than the vast majority of religious Jewish women leaders. They gave birth to a son, Oived, and a grandson, Yishai. Yishai, the father of King David, was the 13th generation. Thirteen is a symbol of perfection. And therefore the Gemara says that Yishai was so perfect, he is listed among the four, or possibly five, as I call this, it's a fifth one, among the four who never committed a sin during their entire lifetime. Yishai was the father of David HaMelech. Note then, as I call this, says that David HaMelech was the 14th generation. He is Bigimatri of 14. The miracle value of David is 14. We show that he is the 14th generation after Abraham Avinu. And he is the eve of the 15th. The eve means the preparation. Preparing for the 15th day for perfection. And that's why he laid the groundwork for the building of the Beis Hamikdash, for the conquest. He was the one that conquered the enemies of the Jews and gave his son, Shlomo HaMelech, a throne in peace. It was then we come to the 15th generation, the generation when the moon was now complete, when the Hebrew nation, the nation of Jews, were now at their peak of perfection. This was their moment of glory when they ruled over the entire world. Their king, Shlomo HaMelech, ruled over the entire earth plus the upper world, and there was no place to go further higher than that. It was then, though, after this completion of these 15 generations, that we have the Pasuk, V'yeshev Shlemei Akisei Hashem Lamelech, that Shlemei Melech sat on the throne of Hashem, 
ruling in peace over the world, and for the wisdom that Shlomo was proven to be greater master over all of the rest of the people on earth. Of course, this wisdom, as Abenazel explains, we had this on Pesach, the words of Abenazel said this wisdom, there are two kinds of wisdom, Chachma Ilah and Chachma Tatoh. Upper wisdom, the highest of the Sfidas, and the lower wisdom, the tenth one. The lower wisdom is called the Malchus. Malchus meaning the perfect kingdom. So the course of the wisdom of Shlomo HaMelech, therefore he had the perfect kingdom. That's why in his time there existed the Beis HaMikdash. That's why in his time, for the first time, there was a Beis HaMikdash, a holy temple, because the Gemara says that the word Deo, or wisdom, is between the two names of Hashem, just as the word Mikdash, the holy temple, is also written between the two names of Hashem, showing that where there is wisdom, then there is a holy temple. And here the Zayda Kodesh says we go on to the next phase. He said case, the fact that this is not permanent. The moon rises to its peak and then begins its decline. The Jews reach their peak, they do not remain there. They cannot remain there because there will be no peak for the Jews until Mashiach finally comes. That is why we come to the 16th day of the moon when there is a begun, a deficiency, a defect. Part of the moon is missing, and it's then that it continues its decline until it disappears, or seems to disappear. So that this 16th is the symbol of the downfall of this kingdom. And that is why the Zayi Kodesh says that we find that from there on we have exactly 16 generations to Tzitkiyahu HaMelech, who was the king when the Jews were driven out of Israel to Bovel, to exile. Listing these 16 generations, first one is Rechavon, the son of Shlomo HaMelech. This first one is the first of the 16. At the same time, keep in mind that he is also the 16th generation, the one after Shlomo HaMelech. And that's why we find in his time, there was already that split. The 12 tribes were rent asunder. They then had two tribes and 10 this was the beginning of the downfall. After Achavon, to make matters worse, his son Aviam was an evil king. And then the third generation, Osa, they finally had a king who was good, who turned back to belief in Hashem, who cleared out most of the idols that had been built by his father Aviam. The Jews turned to Hashem to a good degree. The fourth generation, which was in a sense supposed to be perfection, and Malchus and kingdom was Yashafat, was also a very good king, pure king at heart, who served Hashem very loyally. But from there, we find that Yoram, his son, fifth generation, Achazio, the sixth son, you recall these stories we had in history, if your memory does not uh, desert you, the detailed stories of these kings, how these two were idol worshippers. Then came the seventh generation, Yoyosh, who was a very good king, turned back to Hashem, and the next three were good. Yoyosh, his son Amatsio, his grandson Uziyahu, who was the ninth generation. Uziyahu's name was originally Azariyahu, was a very good king, and his son Yeson also followed the belief in Hashem, 
and kept the Jews away from idols to a degree. However, the next son, that is the 11th generation, turned sour. Ochoz was one who turned to idol worship and led the Jews to the same type of idol worship. These two tribes, which are known as the kingdom of David Amelach, the family of King David, he led them into idol worship just as the ten tribes on the other side had done. However, this was not the end. Because Achaz had a son, the twelfth generation, twelfth generation two, Israeli Kodesh says that the Malchus stands on Yudbe's twelve pedestals, twelve tribes. And therefore his son was the completion of these twelve. Twelfth generation was Cheskiyahu HaMelech, who was the best of all these kings. Greatest tzaddik of all the kings was Cheskiyahu HaMelech. In his time, the miracles of Hashem shone forth. We had a long session on the history story of Cheskiyahu HaMelech. His son Menashe, the thirteenth generation, was one who began poorly, began in sin, but showed that it is possible, though he was so steeped in evil, in sin, in crime, not only did he lead the Jews into idol worship throughout, but he also committed the worst type of murder. The Torah says that Yerushalayim was filled with blood from one end to the other because of the murder of the greatest Navi at that time. Also, despite this, he did tshuva, he repented in his later years, and his repentance was accepted despite the opposition, the battle of the angels in heaven, who refused to allow his repentance to reach heaven. Hashem opened a special channel in his tshuva to reach to the throne of Hashem. And this was due to the fact that the 13th generation represents the Yud Gimel Midas, the 13 characteristics of kindness, compassion, pity by Hashem. 13 names of Hashem that represent Rachman, kindness. Show that his tshuva was accepted. And of course, it's a lesson in history for all people in the future. No matter what a person does, no matter how evil he is, no matter what sins he committed, there is no time ever that the gates of heaven are actually closed to repentance. A person would incur the wrath, the anger of all the heavenly forces, all the angels in heaven. He should know that there is still a special side road built, created by Hashem, and there's no heavenly force that can attack one traveling on that road. That road leads directly to the throne of Hashem itself. A person doing tshuva who is turned down by the heavenly forces can take that road directly to Hashem. This is the power of tshuva, repentance. He was the 13th generation. His son, son of Manasseh, Amon, 14th one, turned away from Hashem his short span of leadership and then the 15th generation which again should be perfection was Yeshiyahu Yeshiyahu Melech where the Torah itself testifies that he served Hashem with all his heart complete perfection but then came the 16th generation 16th when the light of the Jews was extinguished when the Golis, the exile caused the Jews to leave the bright lantern, the illumination of the Jews, the Beis Hamikdash, the holy temple, was destroyed when Or turned to Esh, light 
turned to fire, destroyed the Beis Hamikdash, which means the Beis Hamikdash, which is the eyes of the Jews, were closed, blinded. This was symbolized by Tzitkiyahu's being captured by the king of Babel. First act was to blind him. The custom was brought into Babel to the king, had him blinded there. This was the last king of the Jews. This was the 16th generation. Now this is a, in a capsule form, a review of the history of the Jews, the rise and decline, until they went into Golis, into exile. This exile lasted for 70 years, which is the average lifespan of a person. It means a person who spend his life in exile, and it is up to him to strive his entire life for the Geula, for redemption, to return back to Hashem. Same time, the most noteworthy item here is the fact, as is brought, that the difference in heaven, the separation in heaven between Gan Eden, paradise, and Gehenna is so thin a filament that it's practically invisible. The difference between Sadiqim and Rishon, the righteous and the evil in heaven, between the peak of bliss, enjoyment, and the worst type of suffering and torture is only a fraction of an iota apart. This very thin sheet that separates the two. This means then, the fact they are so close means that this represents, it's representative of the fact that on earth too, a person walks along a very narrow bridge, very narrow, one misstep could have him fall, become a casualty, a victim, and instead of ending up in Canadian, he could find himself the lowest place again. This we see, in a practical sense, by the mitzvahs, the commands of Hashem, laws of the Torah. Find that a person, Abinadol says that a person for a slight temptation, very slight desire, fulfilling that desire, can cause him the loss of his entire eternal life in the future, plus the loss of his life on earth. A person, for example, feels a desire for vengeance against someone else, one who had possibly harmed him. He wants vengeance. So in a moment of anger, a moment of uncontrollable fury, he commits murder. By that murder, he could possibly lose his whole future life in Ganadin, Plus, he must be put to death on earth too, just because of the momentary second satisfaction. He received revenge. That one second of satisfaction, of possible pleasure, he has sacrificed his eternal future. If not for that one second's act, he could still be on a very possibly high level. This could happen to a tzaddik, to a person who is pure and righteous. He could destroy himself with that one single act. The same thing is in reference to Chil Shabbos. How long does it take a person to push a switch on Shabbos? Put the light on on Shabbos, or to write a couple of letters of the alphabet, or to turn on a fire, cook something, extinguish a fire. These are acts that take a second, very thin moment of time. And yet, this one moment could cause a person destruction spiritually and physically. Same thing, too, in Midas, in character. A person could be tempted to speak Lush and Hara, 
There is that temptation, though the Gemara says there shouldn't be such a temptation because there really is no pleasure in it. The other person is misled to speak to slander about another person. He speaks the word of Lashon Hara. This is equivalent to committing murder, equivalent to worshipping idols. And for this, the person destroys himself because the penalty for Lashon Hara is the same as the penalty for the worst type of crimes. So for that one moment of Lashon Hara, that possible, questionable satisfaction, he has sacrificed a whole lifetime and an eternity. More so, when a person allows his temper to overcome his emotions. A person allows himself to become a servant to his temper. His anger becomes his master, and in this fit of anger, he loses his temper, thereby committing the sin of idol worship, who is the idol himself. The Gemara says, You shall not have an idol within you. How does a person have an idol within himself? The temper, the anger within him is considered an idol. He is worshipping his own idol within himself. So we see that for one moment, the fit of anger, a person could needlessly and illogically destroy himself. He's not hurting the person he's angry at. He's literally destroying himself for that one single second. And this means that he's transferring himself just through that thin sheet, that thin partition between Ganadin and Gehenim. Same thing too with other cases, for example, taking or giving interest. These are small items. They take very little time, but they are very destructive. A person coming to shul, he's performing a mitzvah. He figures that he'll have on his record a very noteworthy, admirable statement recorded. He attended davening. He was there throughout the entire time. During the davening, instead of paying attention to the chazan, he spoke. He spoke to a friend. He uttered a word, very little. He paid attention with one word that caused him to lose answering Amen. He did not answer Amen to a bracha, just once. The Zayde Kodesh says, Shemichoyezal himself, says that there are seven sections to Gehenna. Seven layers in Gehenna. Zayim Adure Gehenna. These seven layers of Gehenna one is worse than the other. The seventh bottom layer is the most horrible. Shemichoyezal says a person going to any one of these seven layers of Gehenim could ascend, could escape from them, or could deserve coming out of them and going to Ganeidon eventually. But there is an eighth portion. There is an eighth section that's beneath these seven. This is called, Pasuk says, lish They go down lish to the Sheol, Sheol Tachtis. Lish means you have twice two, because the hey at the end means two, and the Laman in the beginning means two. You have twice two, two, this section. This means two there and remain there. One part from which there is no escape. Shemichoyzal says, what does a person have to do to receive so severe a punishment? And he says simply, to fail, deliberately fail to answer Amen, this merits a person going to the eighth section. But this is very simple. One single simple act, a person has committed so severe a crime. So again we see how easy it is for a person to fall into the wrong 
section in heaven. At the same time, we must now become aware of a new lesson, a new vista that opens before us. And this we should take to heart just as much, with as much care, as much participation in it, as we do with speaking about the Musa, the fears and the horrors of the punishment for these short, not minor, major, but short sins. Let's analyze this in a different light. We're speaking now about people, Jews, who have faith, complete faith. A Jew believes that if he eats a tiny drop of unkosher food, he will receive very severe punishment. He has a muna. The Jew believes that if he takes interest, for example, or that if he misses, fails putting on tefillin, or that if he breaks a holiday, or Shabbos it's a very serious sin. He also believes, even if he feels he cannot control himself at all times, he believes that if he loses his temper, he does not doubt the fact that for that momentary loss of temper, there will be punishment forthcoming. A Jew believes that if he has a momentary feeling of gaiva, conceit, haughtiness, he knows this too is like idol worship. These things he believes. Abedinadel says, fine, it's very good to believe that because then you will try to refrain from committing these items, these sins. At the same time, concentrate, think. We have a general rule that Hashem, in ratio, pays more reward for mitzvahs, for good deeds, than he punishes for evil deeds. So since we say that for committing so tiny a crime, so simple an act, there is so much punishment for it, let's see how Hashem pays reward. For example, if a person is embarrassed, a person is insulted, at that moment, it's in a form of a test. A person at that moment could lose his temper, go into a fit of anger, and thereby commit the act of idol worship at that moment. If at that very same moment, for a second, the person just brushes it off and smiles and ignores the remark, he walks away from there thinking, so what? Nothing has happened. That's a false thought. Because something has happened. Something very big has happened. If you believe that in that one moment a fit of temper could have destroyed your soul, could have been considered, recorded as idol worship, you must believe more so that that one moment of a smile, of ignoring, disregarding this opportunity to lose your temper, that one moment of controlling yourself should be classified as a mitzvah as high and even greater than the sin of losing one's temper. Which means that the person who did that performed that act of self-control, that one second, and forgot about it. He figured this is nothing. What happened? He just disregarded this. He walked away and forgot it. He might have forgotten it, but in heaven it is not forgotten. This person can eventually come to heaven and find that there, instead of being far lower than the person who had insulted him, because he was lower, he was not as good a person, he was not as learned, far from being equal to this one who was superior to him, he finds now that due to this one act of self-control, Mitzvah was so great that this alone elevated him to a point higher than the person who had insulted him. One single act 
does so much for his record, for his credit, as much as it would have done harmfully the other way. One single act, and yet it's, it's so important. It has such effect on it. Or a person coming to shul, and there are people next to him who get into a conversation speaking Dvaramatelam, words that are worthless, a worthless matter. And instead of joining them, he pursues whatever he's doing, saying to Hillam or learning, he gives up the pleasure of joining in this light talk. He forgets about it. It wasn't much of a test for him. It wasn't much accomplished. Yet he can find later on that this one act will stand out, not may, but will stand out, as an item for which alone there can be a whole section of Ganeidin or a mitzvah that is so great that it could overpower many of the other small sins he committed. One single act, a small one, yet just as much as a small act can bring about suffering and destruction, so too, and more so, can a tiny act on the part of a person bring about mitzvahs and reward. And that's why we can never compare two people. You see people, for example, in shul, and one person does more than the other. He pays closer attention to the brachos. He answers Yehoshua with more power. In fact, he screams it out. People laugh at him. Does that person receive the same reward as the others? Hasbe Shalom to believe so. Certainly there is pay for it. He's doing a mitzvah with more kavana and more heart. There is additional reward for it. If a person in shul stands more than the others, times when others would sit, he would stand. It shows respect for the davening, for the laning. For every second that he stands, it does not go to waste. There must be additional reward. If he's performing a mitzvah, there must be reward for it, just as there is punishment for the slightest infraction. So every one of these things, again we note, that there's so narrow a boundary, a separation between these two, and yet this narrow boundary up in heaven results in a difference that is so vast, a difference in eternities. And this is why we see this lesson we learn from the fact that the immediately afterwards, the 15th, the 16th, the moon completes its evolution, it rises to its peak, and when it reaches its peak, it begins this descent. It becomes pogum, it is deficient, and it continues its decline downwards. This is what happens to a person too, just as it happens to the Jewish nation. We follow history, we find the Jews had this continuous ascent and decline. They rose up, they fell back. First base of Mikdash, they went to the top. They fell, it was destroyed. They went to Golis, they came back. The second base of Mikdash was even better and more beautiful than the first. The second one, too, went up to a point where it, too, was remodeled, made over by Hurtis, and then they again fell. But as they fell, they took with them other empires, because those that destroyed them temporarily were themselves later completely wiped out. These giant empires that were so much larger, more powerful than the Jews, later just disappeared from the face of the earth, while the Jews went downwards, reached the point of practically disappearing, and then were reborn like the the bird Chel, the like the phoenix bird as it's called, bird that after a period of years goes into a fire, seems to be destroyed and comes out of that fire new and refreshed. 
This is the state of the Jews, the state of the moon. The tefillah about the moon is, each month we say a tefillah to Hashem. We pray to Hashem that the moon should finally receive its full light and remain so. But whom are we speaking? About the moon representing the Jewish nation. We have gone through a number of periods of exile as witness our past history. And we have suffered throughout generations by different empires, large and small, by different types of people, by nations that were divided and nations that were united. In all cases, they were against us. They were opposed to us. If they were ever united, it was only for the purpose of destroying the Jews, Jewish nation. And yet, in all cases, they never succeeded. No matter how powerful, how great, how high a, an apex they reached, they themselves were destroyed, the Jews remained. But this too will come to an end. Because we have had the kingdom of the Jews with the loss of the Beis HaMikdash twice, there will come forth the next king of the Jews. This one will be the permanent one. Permanent king, Moshiach ben David, again, the son of David HaMelech, Again, note that he is the son of David Amalek because he represents the one after the 14th. 15th one again. He's still considered the 15th generation as son of David Amalek. This will be the moon in its full glory, but remaining so perpetually and eternally. And this is what is meant when the Gemara says, Kol mi sheyesh v'ideya ke'ilo nivna b'smiktash b'yomov. Every person who has wisdom, that person is considered as though the Beis HaMikdash was built during his time. What is meant by wisdom? Wisdom means to evaluate, to appraise. A person who is wise, when he has the opportunity for a mitzvah, or he has the chance to commit a sin, and before doing so, he thinks carefully, he uses his wisdom to select carefully, to choose wisely, and he does choose wisely. He chooses the proper path, where he performs the mitzvah, he controls himself, overcomes this temptation, avoids the sin, and this wisdom is as though he lives at the time of the Beis HaMikdash. Because as far as he is concerned, his kingdom is perfect. He rules over the mightiest. He rules over himself. He rules over the Yitzhahara, the Satan, the heavenly world above, just as King Solomon. He is a true Yisrael. Yisrael means one who rules over the angel, the angel of evil. And that one, Yisra, means the, the ruling power. This one is as though, in his turn, the base of Mikdash was rebuilt, and he is the one that contributes the most to having the base of Mikdash rebuilt for all the Jews. But we should take this lesson truly to heart. We should be certain.